The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As you listen to this interview, there is much contained within which will butt up strongly against many of your long-standing beliefs and perceptions. Due to this clash, you may be easily tempted to stop listening, as that which you have attempted to mentally digest borders on seeming beyond possible. This reaction is entirely expected. In the absence of such a reaction, genuine psychological elucidation is not being prompted. Tonight's special guest has gone to extraordinary lengths to try to have everything make perfect sense, if only on the basis of good old-fashioned common sense. When he looks at the world around him, he sees a very unhealthy place where the bulk of humanity is heading on a fast train towards very unhappy times. He doesn't have to be especially perceptive or smart to make this observation, but only be able to appreciate blatant and ugly trends gaining significant momentum in just a few decades of time. By trying to encourage people to consider a few things in a new light, he hopes we might begin moving away from the ominous shadow stealthily stalking our entire human race. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Daniel Wiley is a former U.S. Army combat medic. He's the first former soldier to successfully graduate from pharmacy school while being sponsored through the Veterans Vocational Rehabilitation Program. He practiced as a licensed pharmacist for 15 years and processed some 250,000 specific medication orders while maintaining a 0.0% error ratio. Subsequently, he obtained a business degree program and graduated magna cum laude. He is the author of full-length nonfiction books titled Pharmacist on the Edge, You're in the Army Now, and The Shape of Things to Come, which you can purchase at veritasradio.com, where we have a more comprehensive bio. Daniel Wiley joins us from Fort Collins, Colorado. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to Veritas. Yeah, hi, Mel. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm privileged to be on with you. Well, Daniel, uh, it's great to have you on, especially now that we're getting back to our more traditional topics, although I don't know that this is one of the traditional ones, but uh, we're definitely going to be getting into the rabbit hole tonight. So why don't we start with some of your background beyond what I read. All right, then. Well, um, I was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1965, about a year after high school, joined the Army, became an Army combat medic. I was subsequently selected for Army nursing school, went to Army nursing school, 
with the near 4.0 average. And then I went back to the VA and I said, hey, listen, since I finished this much on my own and got near straight A's, will you consider finishing uh, paying for pharmacy school for me? And they said yes. So when I graduated three years later, I was the very first former soldier to ever successfully graduate from pharmacy school while being sponsored through the Veterans Vocational Rehab Program. Um, after a number of years, I got uh, a job at a hospital working as a pharmacist. I was in that capacity for for three or four years, and what happened was is I noticed that the way that they were handling their oncology operations were very, very dangerous. And I repeatedly went to management and let them know that, you know, hey, you guys have really got to be a little bit more careful as to what's going on with operations the way they are presently. It's not going to be a matter of if somebody gets hurt. It's only going to be a matter of when. And sure enough, uh, you know, sometime after, you know, all these repeated warnings, a patient got a bad dose of uh, intrathecal cisplatin dose that was comp powdered improperly by an untrained pharmacist and died. And um, so what happened was, is they, they tried to sweep it under the rug. Um, I tried to compel them to do the proper thing. Uh, they ended up firing me for petty reasons, and uh, which eventually led to me pretty much losing my career as a pharmacist. So even though I had a, um, uh, a what, they, what they referred to as a perfect practice record, uh, meaning that I had processed over 250,000 individual medication uh, records and orders uh, with a 0.00% error ratio, meaning I never made a single mistake. I, I lost my career as a pharmacist for the most part. And uh, from there, just pretty much have done whatever I could to financially survive. Uh, just to let you know, um, the state of Colorado uh, Department of Labor Employment held a hearing on my termination, determined that I was not at fault for my termination from the hospital. Uh, that didn't seem to help me in getting back into working as a pharmacist. But at that time, I was so jaded uh, by the whole healthcare industry, especially the pharmaceutical industry, that um, I really felt guilty all the time. In fact, uh, while I was working as a pharmacist during those latter years, I had a pretty bad issue with uh, alcoholism. And um, from the day I stopped working as a pharmacist, I've never had a single drink of alcohol. And it's not been one of those white knuckle experiences. It, it was my problem was related to guilt and stress associated with my position as being a pharmacist. Once I was no longer a pharmacist, I did not have that guilt. And I had no uh, desire to numb my brain through alcohol anymore. I cannot tell you how many pharmacists absolutely despise their jobs. I don't know what the current situation is like, but back when I practiced as a retail pharmacist 20 years ago, probably half uh, of the pharmacists and pharmacy technicians working in retail pharmacy were hardcore uh, narcotic addicts. They are narcotics addicts because of the access they have to pharmaceutical products? We, that's part of it. The other part of it is just because it's like working in a Taco Bell, but if you make a mistake on a taco, you can get sued and lose your livelihood. Well, of course, because you, you, you can kill somebody. 
Well, that's right. But it's it's not only that the fact that you can kill somebody, but you're working inside of this box inside of a grocery store where if a customer comes up and asks you where the orange juice is, you've got to drop what you're doing. You, you, you know, not focus on your work. Mm-hmm. You've got to go help the customer. If you don't help the customer, then the store manager is writing you all the time. So it's this blatant professional conflict of interest to have these pharmacies inside these grocery stores that are managed by um, grocery store managers. And the pharmacist, you know, try to tell the, the state, various state boards of pharmacy all the time, look, we should not be in these in these positions, but, you know, being managed by these grocery store managers because they they are constantly encouraging us to do things which are unethical as it pertains to pharmacy. You know, let me interject for a second. I, I always sure. wondered that, Daniel. See, I'm just thinking I I had a hunch that this was happening. Because I see these pharmacies all the time, conveniently located inside of, of every convenience store, supermarket, Walmart, and so on. But, you know, I had family members who had pharmacies in the past, and they owned the pharmacy. People would go to the mm-hmm. town pharmacy, and it's almost sometimes people didn't even go to the doctor. They would go and see so-and-so, hey, what do you think about this? And the local pharmacist would know sometimes even more than the doctors. But all of a sudden, small mom-and-pop pharmacies faded away, just like many retail stores faded away. And they, now they merged into the you know retail compounds of uh, the supermarket chains or Walmart and so on. So do we see the old-school pharmacists still alive, or are you now part of a grocery store chain? Oh yeah, the the well, well back uh, to your point about the mom and pop pharmacies uh, having some of the you know the the best pharmacists that had the most information. Back when you had these these individually owned uh, pharmacies, like uh, a lot of Rexalls uh, frequently are owned by an individual, um, so we'd have like a smaller uh, sort of little general store along with the the pharmacy, which right. was the primary business. And if you owned your own own pharmacy you could do things your own way and you could practice in an ethical manner and um, you could call your own shots and take breaks however you wanted to and eat lunch and so on and so forth and um, you could have a fairly decent life a fairly decent experience you didn't have all that stress associated with being uh, told what to do uh, constantly but yeah uh, those are those operations are for the most part gone um, every, everybody works for uh either a, a huge retail chain or they work for a, a hospital which is in turn managed by a giant health core uh, management corporation such as H- HCA. And by the way, everybody knows this, pharmacists, they have a very lucrative life, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe I know that you earned you know, six figures and a lot of times you earn much more than those stores' managers, which makes no sense when you are essentially reporting to them, right? That's right. And that, that was part of the issue is that uh, they felt that they were king of the mountain and they they absolutely despised anybody making any more money than they did. And uh, sometimes those people would just go out of, out of their way to just make us miserable. You know, they'd cancel our vacations, they'd call us in on our days off, um, you know, constantly threatening to fire us if uh, uh, if you know they they really wanted to get rid of you. 
Um, they would do creepy things to fire you, that which would really uh, negatively affect your career and so on. And so, uh, yeah, it's just a, a really um, uh, uh, ugly situation for these pharmacists to be in. And most, most of them are just miserable, miserable people. Um, I've got a couple pharmacists, friends of mine that I still uh, keep in contact with. And uh, both of them um, constantly suffer from chemical dependencies, failed relationships, alcoholism, um, you know, suicidal tendencies, so on and so forth. For the most part, uh, pharmacists are not happy people. Well, it's not only pharmacists. And, and by the way, I didn't expect that we we're going to be discussing this today, but because it's part of your bio and it's relevant, I, it's okay to expound on it. But doctors, you probably know there's medical doctors. I believe the life expectancy of a doctor, I believe the age is 56. And I personally know people who have committed suicide and it's probably one of the highest um, professions when it comes to early demise or suicide. And I wonder why that is. Do you know? Uh, well, uh, yes. Uh, part of the reason why is because um, uh, they go through all this. Uh, uh, well, first of all, just to become a doctor in today's environment is so insanely competitive. Um, a lot of the, the medical schools um, have, uh, in order to be considered competitive, you actually have to have a, a, a if not a 4.0 average, you have to have an excess of a 4.0 average. And so people will wonder, well, if, if 4.0 is perfect, how do you get better than perfect? Well, the way that they do that now is that you can actually do things to pay to have these extra classes and things where you'll get extra credits added on top of your 4.0 average. And so if you look at, if you just go to like uh, Harvard or Yale right now and look at uh, like their average uh, GPAs for uh, acceptance into their medical programs, um, you'll see a lot of them are like 4.1. That's incredible. Yeah. And so what happens is, is that um, you get these doctors, they go through these incredible uh, 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 competitive um, uh, trainings to get into these programs. Oftentimes, when they get into the programs now, the programs now um, uh, are worlds apart different from what they were back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, where when you came out of school, you were you know, a fairly uh, accomplished, uh, uh, knowledgeable individual. Um, for the last 10 to 20 years, uh, what they teach these people and how they teach them and the authority that they give them after they become licensed has just been stripped. They've just been turned into to order followers. And a lot of the doctors feel like they just work for insurance companies. So let's say, for example, a, a, a doctor sees a patient and um, this patient has a particular, uh, say, skin infection that he knows the perfect uh, uh, type ointment that will treat this infection. Um, well, he has to go by a matrix. And if the, if the drug is not carried on the formulary matrix, then he has to write a prescription for the other drug first. And then if that doesn't work, which he almost 
knows for sure it won't because he's the person with the experience, then the patient will have to come back for a subsequent appointment. Now he'll have to submit, you know, sort of an insurance override for the new drug. The patient will have to go back to the pharmacy for another prescription to get another ointment, which he knew would have worked from day one had he been allowed to do his job as he, you know, wanted to do it. But he's managed by the insurance company. I think that's what's, that's what happens, Daniel. The medical doctors and even pharmacists, you have to operate within the specific toolbox or script that is given to you by the Rothschild medical industry. And if you even step out of that, then your career is over. Your license might be revoked. And I think that one of the things that causes depression and even suicide is the fact that a lot of these doctors go to medical school, which is a mind control system. I mean, sometimes you can't even sleep for days in preparation for a test. And then you come out and you realize, I'm going to be here to cure and to save lives. And you realize that it's not what you thought. You cannot cure anyone because there's no cure. Cure is, you know, the, and the, the, the it goes against all principles of medical industry because it's not profitable. So anyway, I don't want to continue discussing all of this. I want to just to discuss your biography. But then how from here, how did you go to become an author into all these deep rabbit holes that you discuss in your book? Okay, well, um, uh, because I was already open uh, to the truth about the, the, uh, the healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry, um, I had also worked as an insurance agent for a period of time before um, uh, before I went to pharmacy school. So I already knew how corrupt the insurance companies were. Um, and so since I was already open uh, to uh, the, 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 you know, the reality that this, um, uh, that the American dream was uh, a little bit more of an American scream, um, my mind was was uh, maybe a little bit more open uh, to others and maybe a bit more skeptical than the average person. And um, uh, so what happened was, is uh, during this the summer of 2016, um, I was I uh, my favorite uh, genre of things that uh, that I'm interested in for for years and years and years was true crime. And in fact, up until about 10 years ago, there probably was not a book of any note on the subject of true crime that I hadn't read, if not hadn't read two to three times. So I was literally a bibliophile. I had read tens and thousands of books throughout my life, um, and I was just addicted to true crime. So the the types of programs that I listened to on YouTube were related to true crime. Okay. So, um, uh, one thing I noticed was that the, um, on these programs such as like 24 hours and, uh, uh, 20 or excuse me, 48 hours and 2020 and so on. Um, is if you watch the, the older, uh, versions of these shows from the, from the eighties, that that uh, some of the people that are portrayed on there as being the family members um, of one of the main characters in the program. Now, 
Now, these are supposed to be fact-based, you know, somewhat documentary-type programs, are now actors on modern-day crime shows. So, for example, if you had a girlfriend of a male murder victim on a 2020 program from 1993, and this girlfriend was, was 17 years old in the program at the time, she may now be a 41-year-old actress on some, you know, uh, CSI program. Well, hold on. Are you saying that what you thought were real stories and they were interviewing real characters, life characters, were actually actors? And did, yes. they, disclose, did they disclose it? No, but you could tell who the people were. I mean, you could just hmm. obviously see that was the exact same person. Now, now, how frequent? Now, first of all, at to what level does that go on? I have no idea, but I saw it enough to know that. Well, hey, well, that tells me that's fake. So you're saying that a lot See, of those stories of crime were actually scripted for people to think that right. it was a true story. That's right. Huh. That's right. Yeah, see, I always, I always wondered to see, like, for example, let's say if it was a 2020 program or a 48 hours program where you had, say, a young male was, was murdered and that was the, uh, the topic of the program. And supposedly this is sort of a quote unquote documentary. Um, it struck me as being very odd that the parents of these murder victims all seem to fit a certain mold. They all seemed to be slightly upper middle class. They were all early retirees. They, they all, you know, were very well spoken. They were all, you know, physically attractive. Um, and it just seemed to be this, this, uh, this sort of um, uh, casting role play for these grieving parents that you would see over and over and over in these programs. So how frequently do they do that? At what level, at what percentage? I have no idea. But I could tell you with no doubt whatsoever that some of these people that are, are actors and actresses in modern day programs. So you're sure, I don't mean to interrupt yes. you, you're, you're sure they, yes. did, they did not put a little headline saying some scenes of this program have been reenacted with actors you know, for example, as you said, if if they're showing a person who got killed and they want to portray the person before the person was murdered, well, they would no. use an actor or an actress to no, to that's show. Not, that's not the case. And in mm. fact, I, I wish I could remember her name, but um, I think her first name is Melissa. She was on one of these very popular CSI programs that was popular maybe 10 years ago. Um, she had a very prominent page boy haircut. Where, where it came down to where it was sort of cut straight across the eyebrows. A very, um, uh, uh, a, a, a very um, uh, sort of a classic look uh, to, this, to this person uh, with, this, with this page boy haircut. Well, when she was portrayed as the girlfriend of a murder victim on a 2020 program in the early 90s, She had the exact same haircut. Yeah, so not only was it the same actor, they had the same haircut. And, um, I mean, it was it's blatantly obvious. Now, um, like I said, uh, to what level they do that or not, I really don't have any idea. But um, if it, now, 
as to what we know, how the rest of our culture works, and we begin to learn more and more and more, is that really that surprising? Oh, no. Hindsight of 2020, but yeah. the re- what, what is right. the reason then? If, if you go back to those 60 minutes, 48 hours, 2020, and you see that now, why do you think they were doing that back then? They were programming you for the future? What was the purpose? Well, because they're paid professionals. And, and, and just like lawyers, working with other lawyers, they all know the lingo. It's easier. So they're basically lying to the U.S. population. I would think that the lying started in 2013 when the Smith-Mund Act, and I always say this, was reversed. Instead of the United States uh, lying to the world as propaganda, because that was part of World War II, now they are allowed to do it after 2013. But this, you're saying this was happening way before. Well, well, yeah, and just just for example, um, uh, the whole the whole cholesterol thing oh, uh, sure. is a scam. Okay, uh, I, 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 when I worked at this this research pharmacy, uh, it was a compounding pharmacy, and what I was trained to do is I was trained to take raw chemicals straight from the shelf and make end line pharmaceuticals from those raw chemicals and sometimes would would process it to the point where I actually put it in the bottle, labeled it, and then mailed it to the recipient. So I was involved in every step in the process, okay? One of the physicians that was a, a silent owner in this pharmacy was a nephrologist. Now, um, it was against the law for him to have any ownership in this pharmacy because it was considered a blatant uh, professional conflict of interest for any physician to have any ownership in any pharmacy. So right away, this per- it told me this person's ethics weren't exactly, you know, uh, uh, you know, very high. But anyways, this nephrologist told me that he was in on the research and development for the statin lowering agents such as Pravacol, Mevacor, and so on and so forth, the cholesterol-lowering agents. He, as, as an, when I worked there, I was a pharmacist intern. As a pharmacist intern, he directly admitted to me that the whole reason behind developing the statin agents was to increase after-marketing, which means that once you give the patients these drugs, it will make them diseased with other ailments at which they have to go back to the doctor to get more prescriptions. As Gwen Olson, former pharmaceutical rep, told me during our interview, she wrote the book Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. She said to me that it was in the 19, late 1950s that somebody came up with the idea of measuring cholesterol levels in your body. And then it was, I think, after oncology or cancer. This is probably one of the biggest revenue makers in heart disease, revenue makers, the cholesterol-lowering medication. And she said what it does, It and correct me if I'm wrong, but it it, it atrophies your, your muscles. What's your heart? What are your kidneys? So when people take that and somebody dies, they say, oh, so-and-so had high cholesterol. When in reality, it was the pills. And of course, if if your organs become weaker and your muscles become weaker, 
then you fall and then you break your bones and, and you have heart disease and renal disease. And that opens the door for more medication. So I can see what you're saying. If you were to say that to your peers, what would they say to you? Um, maybe if I said that now, a lot of them would be accepting of that. But if I had said that 20 years ago, they would think I was crazy. Yeah. Um, well, what what it does is it is it part of how it works is it, inter- it interferes with an enzyme called cytochrome P450. And what cytochrome P450 does, amongst other things, is it interferes with um, uh, uh, muscle metabolism and muscle contractility and so on and so forth. So it affects how your intestines work, it affects how your lungs work, it affects how your heart works and so on and so forth. And so what happens is, is that uh, people, after they take the cholesterol lowering agents, they start having heart problems, digestive problems, muscle problems, and so on. Um, And then they go back to the doctor and they get more prescriptions for more drugs. So oftentimes uh, I would see very elderly patients that were in perfect health that would get a, you know, well, the doctor told me that I need my cholesterol is a little bit high, got me started on a cholesterol pill. Uh, Okay. And then you just see them go downhill from there. Um, But not until they've spent thousands upon thousands of dollars in prescriptions that they never would have required had they not taken the statin agent in the first place. So a statin is literally... A gateway drug that opens a door right. for more drugs coming your way. Right. So think of how long ago uh, television started advertising cholesterol. They started that stuff back in the 70s. Okay. Cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. Take margarine. It has less cholesterol than butter. Okay. So they've been, a, so regardless of the Smith Munt Act in 20. 20- 13 they've been giving it you know sticking it to us for decades well that's another thing daniel the united states and new zealand are the only two countries in the world that are allowed to have direct to market advertising drug direct market advertising no other country in the world allows it yeah yeah because what what can happen is is that you can see an advertisement and then you could think that you could have the ailment and then you can go to the doctor based on a commercial right uh well and here's another thing that that people don't know as well is, is that for example for a long time especially with like mevacor uh if if these patients were, were paying out of pocket for these prescriptions it freaking that was four or five six hundred dollars for a month worth of cholesterol medication okay so for um the drug company to make those 30 tablets of mevacor cost no more than it cost to make 30 tablets of search candy it's the same process so it literally cost them literally cost them a dime yeah it literally cost them a dime to make six to for for 30 tablets that they're selling for $600. But they would say their excuse is, yes, but we spend 90-some percent in marketing and, 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 and yeah. Uh, research. Yeah, research and development. Well, that's a, that's a bunch of garbage as well. Yeah. And, and let me tell you why. 
is that um, uh, as a pharmacist, I was involved in investigative drug studies all the time. I, I, the, the, the number of hours that I spent working directly on investigative drug studies um, is easily in the hundreds of hours. I was never compensated one penny for any of the hours that I spent working on investigative drug research projects. Um, it was considered part of my normal professional obligations. And uh, same story goes for a lot of these um, uh, these professors that work at pharmacy schools and whatnot. Um, they're being paid by the, the university, uh, and the university is oftentimes state-subsidized. So when the drug companies say they spent all this huge amounts of money for all this research and development, it, that's just another one of their lies. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. And believe me, folks, you know I'm not a – an ally of big pharma, but just one thing. For example, you have drug ABC, right? I believe it takes about 10 years before the FDA. Uh, now they have a fast track program where they pay X amount and they can get a fast track. So it's all a, a revolving door between, between the FDA and big pharma. But let's say it takes 10 years. And I don't know how many millions or, or billion dollars before you can get approved with all your research and, and development. And the company has, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because you were in the industry, 20 years from the time that the drug is patented for the protection to to be alive, if you will. So if you spent, mm-hmm. say, $500 million or a billion dollars devising, you know, this, whatever it is that they're putting, all synthetic foreign antigens that people are putting into their bodies. So if you have 20 years, don't you have to calculate how much it would be so that you know that it's feasible? And profitable because after 20 years, what happens? Uh, the patent expires and, and all their manufacturers come along and they have a kind of an abbreviated approval process so they can introduce their own version of the drug at a much cheaper price because they're taking advantage of the fact that the patent has expired. So I'm just playing devil's advocate here for a moment. Well, first of all, I, I would probably venture to guess that these you know, generic drug companies that come around years later and make the drugs after they've gotten off patent are owned by the same exact people who own the, the bigger drug companies. Wouldn't doubt so it at all. So it's like they're being undercut by themselves. Yeah. So, so um, and another thing is that how, exactly how much research and development went into these statin drugs that made you more unhealthy. So it's not... They're, from the get-go, everything about it is is an ugly scam. They lie about every aspect of it. I remember one of our guests in our other radio program, Sanitas, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who died under mysterious circumstances, as many others have. But he told me about this cholesterol. 25% of your brain is composed of cholesterol. And when you take statins, you reduce your IQ you reduce your mental abilities, psychological abilities, physical abilities. So I don't want to go there because this is not a, a medical program. And just for the FDA disclosure, we are not doctors. We're not giving medical advice here. But anybody that takes the drugs, their IQ goes down. That could be measured time and time again, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, anybody that knows anybody that's on any kind of a statin drug, I would recommend stop it immediately. Okay, I'll give the disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, but if it was my mom, that's what I would do. 
Well, that's exactly what I did with my mom, and she didn't believe me, but it just so happened that two months after I told her, she received a letter from the FDA stating that the drug that she was taking was uh, counterproductive and that it would uh, it could give her a heart attack and the, the whole thing that I explained to her, but because it came from an authority, now she believed because, as you know, there are no profits at home. But let's deviate now to the matter at hand because I didn't expect that we were going to be talking about the medical and pharma industry, but that's good because a lot of our listeners are into this. But let's begin with the Masons. This is something that you started discussing in your book. Most people don't know that they make all initiates solemnly swear upon punishment of death to never reveal. You can bet your butt it's not the recipe for a good soup, as you said. In an infamous case in 1826, Group member William Morgan was murdered by his fellow Masons because he was bold enough to put a few of their secrets down in a book titled Illustrations of Masonry. Can you expound on this? Uh, yes, but, but uh, not a whole lot, Mel. And the reason why is because uh, pretty much what I put in the book there is, is pretty much um, what I know about that particular case. Okay, um, my my reason for putting that into the book um, was to introduce the general public into the reality that we've got these very uh, powerful people called Masons and 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 Freemasons within our society that are infiltrated amongst all these um, uh, these upper strata positions. And that these people have a huge influence over the way that our um, that our society uh, functions. What do you think the Freemasons symbol means? So that the square and compass and the capital G. What have you found about this symbol? Okay, well, um, like a lot of people, I had no idea what this symbol represented, and um, uh, even though I've become uh, more aware to it now. Um, for anybody looking, uh, that Freemason symbol is in a lot of different places in our society. In fact, there's a, a sort of a, uh, a, a sort of a, a, a stone at the DIA uh, airport, which is set into the uh, the floor of. Uh, one of one of the concourses there that has that symbol on the top of the stone and, and um so uh i i looked it up and and i said well what is the meaning of the the freemason uh symbol you know because you've got this the square and compass on there and i i and i could not find that there was any uh publicly defined um uh, meaning behind this Freemason symbol. So uh, once I became uh, uh, aware to the fact that uh, we don't live on a spinning globe, but that we live on a flat, you know, a flat plane, then that symbol made perfect sense. You have a compass used to draw circles straddling a square used to draw straight edges so it's the symbolism behind the the global delirium of of where we live 
each each one of us is is taught since the day that we're born that we live on a spinning ball shooting through space where in reality we live on a state state uh, excuse me a flat stationary realm now obviously to a lot of people this is sacrilegious talk uh, this is controversial uh, but it was 2016 when a lot of this topic came alive to many people and this is why we keep discussing it. But one thing about the Denver International Airport, I used to travel a lot before, especially in the mid-90s. And I remember when it was finished, February of 1995, I remember going there when it was finished. And I remember the murals. And you live in Colorado, so you know what I'm discussing. What do you think the significance of those murals that appear in the Denver International Airport are? Well, um, I tell you, from my own interpretation, uh, I have, uh, it, it tells me that's a type of programming, that it, it's trying to prepare people um, for what, what's upcoming in the future. It's very ugly. You get an ugly feeling when you look at it. And um, it, it's, uh, to me, it's sort of rubbing something in our face uh, that tells us, hey, look at what we plan to do with you guys. <laughs> okay, so excuse me. That being said, I watched a program about those murals not too long ago uh, where they had a woman from the airport that was sort of a, a diplomatic representative that was explaining the meanings behind those murals. And what she said was, is that those are supposed to represent things that we're moving away from in our society and um, how we conquered uh, Nazism during World War II. And so uh, my feeling was is that either she was completely deluded and lied to herself or she's being blatantly dishonest. But I guess to, to add to her interpretation, it does look like Nazis killing people. So, Well, can I let me add a few things about that because there's a few items that I, I remember – going there all the time. I also, I used to have very large clients in the company I used to work for before. One of them was Bechtel in San Francisco. And I remember overhearing people there talking about some of the things that they did underground. And if anybody knows that name, Bechtel, one of the largest builders and construction companies in the world. But a few things about the Denver airport that people might not know. It's that it, the original cost was $2 billion dollars. There was a delay of, I believe, 16 months, so they ended up paying more than double, four point, I believe it was $4.8 billion. But a couple of things, the, the airport's runway, if you look at it from above, looks like a swastika. The airport's dedication stone has imagery from a secret society. Some people think, again, that there's a mysterious network of underground bunkers beneath the airport. And then talking about the murals, there are some creepy murals that may show the New World Order takeover. And I always wonder, when you go to the airport, usually if you go on business or you're, you're traveling with your family, it should be a happy place where you leave on a vacation or arrive for your family or friends to pick you up, not to see these things. I mean, there's a mural titled In Peace and Harmony with Nature. And it's, uh, it's meant to address the destruction of the environment. But they do it, they do it in such an affairs way. Then there's another one called Children of the World Dream of Peace. 
And they're supposed to represent the desire to get rid of violence in society. And then there's the one where everybody talks about it. This almost looks like a, and a person wearing a, 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 a mask, a, a scary Nazi soldier with, a, with an automatic weapon. You know, this is the kind of stuff. And a quote from a child who died at Auschwitz. I mean, why would they do this unless they're giving you some predictive programming? Yeah, that that that's my interpretation as well, uh, Mel. Is that um, uh, they like to throw some of the stuff out uh, into our face? Um, one thing that I've learned about predictive programming is that what we see regularly um, becomes normal regardless of whether it's factual or it's fictitious. So what we see regularly becomes normal regardless of whether it's factual or fictitious, such as the globe Earth. And at the very end of Kubrick's film, 2001, Space Odyssey, in 1968, the very last thing that he shows in that film is a giant perfectly spherical globe earth floating in black space which looked exactly like the perfect globe earth floating in space shown to us exactly one year later during the apollo 11 lunar mission so they showed it to us in a movie first you know under the auspices of being fiction Then they show it to us one year later under the auspices of being factual. Let's let's dissect this because this is always fascinating, the Kubrick connection. But before that, one last thing I want to say about the Denver International Airport. They have, those of you who have been to the airport have seen this uh, huge, huge statue of a horse, 32 feet tall and 9,000 pounds. And I believe it's nicknamed Lucifer. And it has red eyes that you can see all day long or night. And some people speculate that it's it's meant to represent the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Uh, but the thing is that it killed its sculpt- the sculptor while he was working on it. So this is such a creepy, creepy place. But going back to to uh, Kubrick for a second. So Kubrick did, uh, forget the exact year that when he did that uh, that movie. What's the name of that movie that came before? It was actually... 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, it was released in... Uh, yes, but before that... Before that, what was the name of the, the movie that oh. he had access to the Pentagon? Oh, you, yeah, um, you're talking about... Um, uh, oh, gosh, yeah. Um, shoot, let me... I, I can't, it's, it's, I, it's, it's, uh, it's escaping my Doctor mind Strange right Love. Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, right. that's all about... Uh, nuclear weapons. So he and, had access. Uh, certain that- he had access to the Pentagon, right? Right. And almost like it was a favor to them. He used a special a special lens that the 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 government gave him. And then years later, when he's in England, he's paid a visit by the U.S. government, saying, "Hey, we need a favor. We're working on a quote unquote project." So the people who say, "Mel, come on, stop it with the conspiracies." It makes more sense to me that the Apollo mission was filmed in a studio somewhere than the stuff that they showed us that I don't think that it can even make it 20 feet above the ground. But anyway, I digress. Go ahead. Right, right. 
Yeah. Well, um, uh, yeah, the, the whole thing about Kubrick is that, uh, Kubrick is one of their, um, uh, their guys that they use, uh, for societal programming and, um, see what it, so here, here's what happened with the, with the film 2001 space odyssey. And it's, it's a very extremely powerful, powerful moment. Okay. Is that you have, uh, in the beginning you have the apes. Okay. And the, the apes learn that if you can master a tool, that that tool will help defend and protect you. So originally these, these, uh, these apes were, were more like chimps. Okay. But what happened was, is that one of them one day realizes that you can use the thigh bone from a pig as a weapon and that you could kill, uh, your, uh, any aggressing apes. Okay. And so what happens is, is that that empowers him. It gives him, it expands his paradigm. It makes him capable of more. And so what happens is, is that, uh, there's this famous scene in this, in the movie where he throws up this, this femur into the air and it's twisting around. And as it begins to fall back down towards the ground, it became, it becomes an orbiting space station. Okay. So what the symbology is, is that you start out with a little bit of knowledge about a little simple tool and decades and centuries into the future you've mastered your tools to the point where now you're actually floating around in an orbiting space station and it, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to say look at the incredible power of the human mind and look at we, what we can be capable of by mastering our tools okay and um uh so what happens is is that when uh, we went to the moon one year later, people were ecstatic with joy. I remember uh, I lived in uh, New Orleans um, when they landed on Apollo 11. And um, probably a half hour after they, they landed on the moon, um, some, some friends of my father's, came busting into the house with arms full of alcohol and then more people came over and more people came over and more people came over and we were watching the TV and jumping up and down and celebrating and people were getting drunk and kids were, you know, uh, taking sips off their parents' beers and everybody was ecstatic with joy. And, um, that is part of what Kubrick set us up for is to have all that association with just how great of a thing that was, uh, not realizing that it was a show in a, in a studio. Let me rewind for a moment. We'll get back to Apollo because that's a, an interesting part. And by the way, I've always wondered why they call it Apollo because, you know, they're Apollo is the god of the sun, not the moon. Why didn't they call it Selene? That is the Greek goddess of, of the moon, but that's something else. But Universal, Universal Studios, I'm sorry, you said something? 
No, I said good point. Yeah. So the Universal Studios, the logo, everybody has been brainwashed to see that logo from, what is it, the 1920s. So yeah. in your book, you have the version from 63 to 69, which was the same almost that what they wanted people to believe the earth looked like. How do they know it looked like that since we didn't have any satellites, if you believe in satellites, the, the ATS, the application technology satellite, which uh, took photos of earth in 1966. And then it wasn't until the last Apollo mission in 1972 that the astronauts allegedly took a picture, a photograph of earth. But the universal logo, Why do you think they they made that to, to program people for the future? Yeah, yeah, it, it's it goes back to what you see regularly becomes normal, whether it's factual or fictitious. So when they show us that globe Earth at the beginning of every single Universal Pictures films for decades and decades and decades, people believe that's what the Earth looks like. And so when you eventually show them the Earth from the Apollo mission, it looks exactly like they expect it to look like. So, you know, it's, it's like I mentioned in the book, if, if you're going to try to trick a child into believing that some person is Santa Claus, you don't have a skinny young person in yellow swim trunks. You have a, you have a, a large jovial person in a red and white suit with a, with a white beard. In other words, you give them what you think they already believe in okay so since people had seen that uh that image at the beginning of universal pictures movies for years and years and years that's exactly the same kind of earth they showed us from the apollo missions it's what we expected it to look like but yeah back back to the original to your original point how would they have known that the earth looked like that from space they'd have no idea because because the Part of the way that uh, that's light is processed, both by the eye and by a, a camera lens, is dependent upon uh, the surrounding gaseous atmosphere. There would be no guarantee that blue oceans would still look blue when filmed from an environment without an atmosphere. So they'd have no guarantee that the Earth would ever even look like that. It may have looked completely different, but what do you know? Looked exactly like we thought it did, exactly like the Earth at the beginning of the Universal Picture Studios movies, exactly like the Earth at the beginning of the Stanley Kubrick movie. You know, so they they show us the same one because that's what we already believe in. If anyone listening lives in Kansas, Florida, Illinois, North Dakota, Louisiana. Minnesota, Delaware, Texas, Nevada, or Indiana, or anywhere else around the world that may be a flat plane. If you're born and raised in that area of the world, and you were told the first time you go to school, pre-kinder, kinder, and instead of seeing a globe on your teacher's desk, you saw a triangle, and you were raised to say, we live on a triangle. Even though you go outside and you see the horizon flat, and you go on a plane at 33, 35,000 feet, and you never see the curvature, but you're told it is a triangle. Do you think that everyone would believe that we live in a triangle, on a triangle? Yeah, I mean, if that's where people were indoctrinated from, from birth, you'd be really surprised at how many people would actually believe that. Because, uh, uh, I mean, all anybody ever has to do 
uh, is go outside and realize there's no aspect of any portion of of anywhere uh, on the earth which has any qualities of having any sphericity to it whatsoever. You never have any inclination whatsoever that it's ever moving. Um, so you have no input telling you it's spherical. You have no input telling you that it's moving, but yet the vast majority of people in the United States believe that it's spinning at high speed and it's a perfect ball. So yeah, they, they, that's, that's what's referred to as cognitive dissonance. Which means that the 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 physical reality of that which surrounds you is in direct contrast to how it exists in your mind, and I believe that's very intentional. And I re and the, the reason I believe that they do that is because it interfects with the with the nerve in your mind. Between the two hemispheres of the brain, you have what's called the corpus callosum. Which, which which translates into big and white. It's essentially, it's a big white neural fiber between the two hemispheres of the brain. That, that corpus callosum allows the left and right hemispheres to communicate effectively. Well, when an individual lives under uh, extreme levels of cognitive dissonance, for example, they live. They believe they live on a spinning spinning sphere when they don't. Then it interferes with the way that corpus callosum functions, and allows them uh, to to be easier brainwashed with other things. Okay, like for example, uh, how many pe- how many times are we shown on television, uh, you know, starving children in Ethiopia? Uh, are you know all these these various you know uh, problems where you know they they need you know call one one eight hundred help or you can help save the animals and and you know please donate etc and so so on and uh, we've got an uh, an eighty three year old woman that has a warehouse filled full of gold and jewel encrusted horse carriages. That has a, a worth that that is so monumental it can't even be calculated. So how can we have people dying from the lack of a few pennies worth of clean drinking water each and every single day, while we have a queen of a country who has so much wealth it can't even be counted? That makes no sense at all. But because our brains are interfered with with our constant programming we accept that as being a normal part of our cultural environment that makes no sense whatsoever but people still donate and that that's another story when you donate to these entities and i know people do it with their heart and i'm not going to be here tell you to, to stop but i want to inform you that a lot of these entities only donate maybe two percent the rest of it goes into bonuses and salaries. And I know from my own experience with the muscular dystrophy, that was that was my awakening when it comes to all these, you know, rum for the cure, blue, I mean, yellow ribbon, all these. Do you really think that all these people that are making millions of dollars, not each one, but these entities, not allegedly nonprofit, are making millions of dollars every single year, that they really want a cure? They don't. They want to continue the game forever. 
They want to just use that for marketing and for salaries. And maybe 2% is going to go to research and development. And if some brave scientist out there says, guess what? I found the cure for XYZ. That person disappears. But I remember, you're speaking of Santa Claus. I remember the illusion of Santa Claus. I believe it, you know, I believed it with all my heart. When I found out as a seven-year-old, I really felt betrayed by my parents. But as a parent now, I know they did it with love and good intentions. But if you believe in the whole earth, and that's how you've been told all your life, past your childhood, not just a phase, but all your life, I bet it's probably the biggest trigger when it comes to cognitive dissonance, if the flat earth is true. And as I've always said, I'm a globe, I'm not a flat earther, I'm a globe skeptic. What's your reaction to all that? Oh, um, yeah, uh, that that's exactly right, is, is that um, uh, we, you know, we, we start out as, as an early age uh, being lied to about Santa Claus, and it's this big, uh, magical, mystical, happy experience. And um, then we we find out the truth, and um, we get we get hurt a lot by it. Uh, but yet we turn around and do the same things to our own kids um, because that's the that's the cultural norm. But yeah, uh, when it comes to um, realizing uh, that uh, that we that we no longer live on a, a spinning ball. Um, some people have so much uh, connection, and it's it's almost like this this romantic love affair uh, with the globe Earth that they refuse. It it hurts them too much personally to accept the truth, so they'll continue to hang on to a delusion, uh, even though it's only a delusion. We need to take a one and only break, but before, I want to ask you something, and I want your answer on the other side. In 2015, while at the VA hospital, you were talking to a fellow veteran who served the bulk of a 20-year naval career on board nuclear submarines as a helmsman. I want you to tell us of that experience, that conversation. The book is titled, The Shape of Things to Come, you can buy it right on our website of veritasradio.com. Well, let's continue for another hour. We have a lot of ground to cover. This is Mel Hustlerig. My special guest today is Daniel Wiley. One more hour in the member section. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.